This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome into the Salt City Hoop Show. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, have been since the True Hoop Network began. Uh, alongside me, as always, is our co-host Ben Dowsett. Ben Dowsett, associate editor, editor of Salt City Hoops and overall gentleman and scholar. I like it. I like it. Good. So we've had an interesting time in Jazzland since, uh, since our last show. You know, We were off for Thanksgiving. The, the man didn't make us work on Thanksgiving. Luckily, this job isn't Walmart. So, um, <laughs> so we, <laughs> but since, since our last show, the Jazz have also taken a tumble, um, having lost seven in a row. So, uh, we wanted to get into during the show a little bit of what's going wrong with the Jazz. You know, what is it on the, is it, you know, the offense? Is it the defense? Is it certain players? Is it the coaching staff? Is it, is it a lack of effort? Is it, too much Thanksgiving turkey, you know. They had Thanksgiving turkey every day for the last two weeks. I think if that's, that's the excuse. I, I think that's what it is. Um, <laughs> it, it hasn't been good. It's been kind of. It's been discouraging how how poorly they've played in a lot of these games over the last seven. So, we want to talk about that. We also want to hear from you guys. What what's wrong with Utah Jazz? So, uh, the the call in number is eight seven seven three five three zero seven hundred eight seven seven three five three zero seven hundred. Call in and, and let us know what you think is wrong with Utah Jazz. We also are going to be reading some tweets on air. Um, my Twitter handle is at Andy B. Larson. Ben over here is at Ben underscore Dowsett. So hit us up on there and we'll, we'll engage on, on Twitter and you know through the phone lines. So let's go ahead and get started, though, on, on what we have. Uh, and I, I think we want to break down what's going on in these seven games. So... Uh, First of all, let, let's start with the defense, because I think that's a clear problem, right? Um, Probably the most ident- easily identifiable one, at least. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of things going wrong here. And actually, Ben, you had a tremendous post, uh, I believe it was Monday, about what exactly was going on with the Jazz on the pick-and-roll. First of all, let's start with that pick-and-roll defense. How much of that is is the problem how much of the bigger defensive issues remember the jazz are second to worst uh they have the second worst defense in the league right now is it down um, to second worst i uh, thought we were still third worst for now but... yes and then Ooh, okay. after last night uh-huh. um yeah last night's performance by the way i should point this out was the fifth worst uh by defensive rating since they kept track of that stat started keeping track of that stat in 1985 so in 30 years of jazz basketball, that was the, the fifth worst de- defensive performance the team has ever put up. Ooh. And the second worst defensive performance of any game this season. Was the worst the Lakers? <laughs> the worst was indeed the Lakers. Sweet. Well, I'm it was that Golden then. State Lakers game where uh, Golden State put up 140. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, okay. So you ask how much of the problem is the, the defensive problem that is, is the pick and roll. Now, that, it's hard to quantify that, of course, because within any given play that you're watching in the NBA, several different types of, of, of basic NBA plays might take place. Now, the pick and roll, as I mentioned in my piece that you talked about, is by far the most common. You probably see some variety of some sort of pick and roll on at least 50% of the plays in the league currently, if not maybe slightly more. Now, that doesn't mean they always end up that way. They always they can end up very different. 
But to answer the question, I would say quite a bit. The pick and roll is extremely highly utilized in the in the NBA today. It's base. It, like I said, the most frequent play type, and the Jazz are just getting killed. They've had. No success. They're on the lowest end, both in terms of pick-and-roll defense per synergy and also per spot-up attempts. A lot of those spot-up attempts, though, are coming from those pick-and-roll opportunities, right? They're right. Get, there's The play is starting off as a pick-and-roll. The Jazz are getting behind on their coverage, often because either their guard or the big man is not in the right position or can't fight over a screen the right way, so on and so forth. Ball gets swung to the help. Once guys crash down, boom, open three-pointer. Yeah, no one's just starting a play by passing it to this three-point wing and shooting it, right? I mean, Every well, once in a while. <laughs> I guess the, the Warriors are a good example yeah. of a team that does do that. But, you know, for the Jazz, certainly, and, and I think most of the Jazz's opponents don't do that. It's pick and roll, and then these rotations start. These, these and the defense gets out of position. They get mm-hmm. pushed to one side or the other, and then open three point shots galore for the other team. Definitely. Now the Jazz actually, as I noted in my piece, have improved just very slightly on a very small sample size so far this year against finished plays in the pick and roll, either the ball handler or the roll man. But those spot-up numbers, like we just talked about, have plummeted. They've been even worse than they were last year. They've been second-worst in the league again. They're allowing, at least when I wrote my piece, they were allowing over 44% on all spot-up attempts, (laughs) which is a ludicrous number to be allowing. And it might be even more by now since the only game they've had since then is the uh, Raptors game. Yeah, that's not good. So uh, what you're telling me, though, is that maybe the Jazz defense is helping too much. You know, Maybe they're helping Mm -hmm. too much on the pick-and-roll and and sagging towards what's happening in the middle of the floor sagging towards that pick and roll and so leaving these these shooters open is, is well, that a fair hypothesis it could be but it's a, the, with each individual pick and roll comes the question of where where was the problem i tried to highlight within the piece and i showed a play and said who do you think was responsible for this for the three that the jazz gave up here and it turns out it was actually trey burke missing and he was guarding the the ball handler in the original pick and roll got caught up really badly in the screen got a mile behind and then the jazz had to help down you because if you don't then whoever trey is guarding as, as a layup exactly okay and so and in the play that i highlighted alec burks had to help way way too far down which sometimes he does on his own sometimes he does unprovoked but in this particular case he was he was right to do it he had to and then the jazz yielded an open three there's responsibility is in at every part uh in this in this this issue with the jazz there are, you can find plays where the problem was the role the guy defending the ball handler you can find plays where it was the guy defending the role man being in a bad position one of the bigs being out of position or you can find plays where somebody like an alec burks or someone like that helps way too far off or kind of just spaces out on their man on the perimeter the jazz are allowing an absolutely inordinate number of open threes though and a lot of them are as a re- direct result of the pick and roll i want to get in jared's tweet here jared at Go the distance. Forty nine says, defense seems to be mostly a wing de- defense issue. We don't seem to have a big that defends the perimeter either. Yeah, is that fair? That's I, I think it's fair. Um, in fact, I think it's very fair. The okay. <laughs> uh, Hayward. I'm. I'm. We're gonna get to the some of the individual players here in a second. Hayward's the one that I'm still the least sure of. I'm. I'm having trouble separating whether his performance is individual or whether he's just having trouble getting getting away from his his teams. What's going wrong with the team? You know. Um. But Burks. I love Alec Burks. Everyone knows I love Alec Burks, but he is, he's had a, a down year defensively. He's having a lot of issues. But, but his strength last year was on the on the ball. He was pretty good at that, actually. One of the top isolation defenders in the league right. per possession. But his play off the ball has remained an issue, and I actually think he, he may have lost a step or a little bit of intensity on the ball, which is worrisome. Which, I mean, I think that might be part of... Being in in a new system, you know, having something new to do. Um, 
these guys are getting very different instructions on defense than, than Ty Corbin was giving them. It's true. And, and I think there still is some confusion about what's going on. I mean, today, for example, their practice was three hours and 45 minutes. By far, th- th- that's the longest practice that Gordon Hayward said he'd been a part of in his time as a Utah Jazz man. That's an insanely long basketball <laughs> practice. Yeah. And, I mean, a, a lot of it was was film study, was looking at breaking down these issues of what's going on defensively and making sure, quote-unquote, they said, making sure everyone was on the same page. And I think that's a huge thing. You know, this is, that's what defense is in the NBA. Defense is not an individual thing. People, I mean, you have your individual skill as a defender, but defense is not just about what you do on your own. It's about the way you help your teammates and the way the five-man unit works cohesively. I liked Seth Partno had an article, um, I believe it was today, saying that, mm-hmm. like, just looking at a standard defensive possession, and on, on this defensive possession, the defense had 15 different decisions to in make. A, in a five-second period of time. In a, wow. Okay, so yeah. a five-second period of time. And if you make any one of those incorrectly, then the defense fails, right? And the mm-hmm. offense gets two points. And, of course, that's why basketball works. That's why basketball games are, are that's why there's 200 hundreds of points. points. Right, but, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this isn't soccer. This isn't hockey. But that being said, the Jazz are making more mistakes than every other NBA team. Yeah, they're making way more than just one mistake. And, by the way, that article was on B-Ball Breakdown, uh, for whom's uh, founder – and CEO, if you will, we will be having on yes. the show just a little bit later. That is Coach Nick. Those of you who know him from his YouTube and Twitter profile, he is an excellent sort of on-court X's and O's guy. We're going to have him on to talk about some of these issues as well, what he's seen from the Jazz from a systems perspective, if you will. So go check that article out as well because we'll probably talk about it with him too. But no, you're exactly right. The the I mean, you, Seth highlighted within that article how, just how bad it can be when you make one mistake. The Jazz are making seven, <laughs> and th- I mean that, it's just impossible at that. Well, point. that's how you get the second worst defensive performance in the league. Yeah. You know that that's how you become not just a bad defensive team, but you know a, a miserable one. Yeah. So what about the bigs? Then we do have another uh, another here on Twitter from James Hansen saying Cantor's help defense is a huge problem, and it has to be frustrating for the other players. Hashtag now, start Gobert. Hashtag start Gobert. I should have not. I should have definitely included the hashtag there. Sorry, James. Uh, so what, what do we think there now? And and specifically, I think it's easy to highlight likely the two biggest culprits. Although seriously, every single member on the Jazz except for maybe Gobert has a lot of blame to go around defensively. But I mm-hmm. think the two biggest culprits are, as we've mentioned, Trey Burke and Ennis Cantor. Yeah. Would you, if you had to? It's not really about this, but if you had to put more of it on one who I know what my answer is I want to hear what your answer would be okay so I I asked Trey Burke about his defense um on Monday's night game Monday night's game against Ty Lawson who actually put up less than the uh, Toronto guards did on last night Wednesday but regardless still lots of scoring Mm -hmm. um and he said when I get beat or when I send my defense into the help sometimes the help isn't there Okay, and that tells me that he has no faith in his bigs, and, and maybe particularly Ennis Cantor, because I, I mean, I, I think Derek Favors does make defensive mistakes, and he and he doesn't help in necessarily all the ways that he should, but he's a vastly better product there than Ennis Cantor. Yeah, I, I there's there the, now we're going to talk about Favors' defense in a little bit, but there he hasn't he's nowhere near as as frequent of the type of errors that Cantor is and he's just he's more he has more vertical he has yeah. more capability to challenge shots he, when, <laughs> even when he is in the right position you know? right if, if he messes up he can still use his use his athleticism to impact the play yeah so so would you so what to answer my question 
if you had to. Again, because, and this isn't, you know, the Jazz aren't sitting in their film study going, you know, Ennis, we blame you. Right. Like, that's not what they're doing. They're, you try and work with guys constructively. But we're, our job is to analyze. So what do you think? I, I think it's probably still Trey. I mean, uh, for a, a point guard or really any player to say, look, I gave this, I gave my player off to you. You didn't help. What, what, what gives? No, I, I think that shows a level of responsibility that Trey should have that he doesn't have yet. Yeah. He needs to say, you know, no, I can't let Ty Lawson beat me. I can't send the guy into the help at the very first pick and roll of the possession and then expect that possession to go well. At, at some level, it's just kind of an unfair task for Ennis and, that, and the rest of the squad. That expectation of, if that's an expectation that's in Trey's mind, that, you know, as soon as I get thrown into a pick and roll, my job is to throw the ball handler to my big, that's a problem because that's not your job. That's like that's part of the job when things break down. Right. That is that is not your first your first you, job is you, to stay in front of your man. You can't do that on every defensive no, possession. No, absolutely not. And you're going to get killed. And I, I I'm going to agree. I think that. And the more I'm watching at this point, I, I, I'm starting to be legitimately worried by. And you know, I I think that he he does a lot of really good things. And offensively, he's actually been really really improving over the last couple of weeks. Even as the Jazz haven't been having so much success. success excuse me. I, I'm really worried about whether he's ever going to have the size or speed, which are, those aren't exactly things you can teach to right. play effective defense against starters in the NBA because he just can't get around picks. He, it, he's running smack dab, and this is another thing I put in my article, he's running smack dab into picks an insanely high percentage of the time, way too high a percentage rather than going above or below them. And when you get caught that far, he's like a, not just a half step behind, he's a couple of full steps behind. That's when you see these manic rotations start and you see teams starting to get wide open threes all the time or wide open layups. And, and it's not just us that's noticing this. I mean, we, uh, Mark Spears was on, on the station today saying this. Jeff Van Gundy did an interview today saying this. I, I, I think the league is starting to recognize that Trey Burke is, is a uh, bl- subpar, let's say, um, pick and roll defender, and in fact, teams are starting to use just exclusively high pick and roll. We saw Toronto use it over and over mm-hmm. and over again last night. Uh, we or saw... put him in the post every once in a while. They're sticking him in the post because he's just not tall enough. Yeah, I, it's true. I, and then Golden State. I remember that game. What was it? It was almost two weeks ago now. Where literally, no matter who Trey and Ennis were guarding, they would just run the pick and roll against those players. Because, you know, even if you put Andrew Bogut in a pick-and-roll who's, you know, maybe not the most natural of pick-and-roll bigs like like David Lee is, uh, you can – it's still better for that team than than whoever is their best offensive player. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, Trey and Ennis are basically more defensive liabilities than the offensive star in the NBA is our stars. That's, I, that's, that's kind of crazy. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that you know, that's a kind of an interesting way to put it. And it, it it's really at this point starting to get worried. Now, do we think – is there a chance that there's just that the effort level just isn't there yet? Is there a chance that we could pawn a lot of this off on that? I mean, it. it I don't think so. Just I don't because I was just I was seeing what you thought. <laughs> I, I I mean, I think the effort level is occasionally not there. For example, in your post, you had that play where Trey just gave up on that mm-hmm. CP3 cut, who you know just cut from the top of the key to the wing for an open corner three. That's just Trey effort. That's just him giving up. Mm-hmm. I think those sort of things can be improved upon. But that being said, uh, I don't know, uh, after a summer of working on it and after a training camp and, and where it was the sole focus, according to Trey, for him to get better on defense, and especially with regards to these screens, and, and truthfully, we haven't seen any improvement at all no. on, on the floor. 
And not only that, but it's now that everybody knows, like we said, it's starting to get spotlighted right. more and more every single game. Teams are, especially teams with good guards, like we've seen some in the last couple of games, they're just going straight at it. There's no hesitation. So, like, I, I think he can get better, and, and young guards do, but I, I don't think that it will ever be a... a a skill of his you know no. in the end you can improve your weaknesses only so much you know jose calderon for example turned from a bad defender to a below average defender yeah. at least by the the statistics i think calderon has to be like a they need to put a picture of him up in trey burke's locker <laughs> or something and they need to say you need to become this guy eventually because that's how he's if he's going to be useful in this league as a starting caliber player it's going to be like taking that sort of a mold a guy who can knock down his open shots when he gets them and who defenses have to respect but then who can not a good defender but who can be at least passable to the point where even when you're trying to hide him on defense, guys aren't still going directly at him with their second best guards, which we've seen. We've seen that already happening with, with, with Trey. So what about the, some of the rest of the starters? And we mentioned both Hayward and favors earlier. What, First of all, what is our, the common perception of those? I, I know what it is of favors. The common perception of favors is that he's got elite defensive upside um, that he may or may not have realized just yet. What what is the book on Hayward defensively, and is he overachieving or underachieving on that book, in your opinion? I, I I think the book is that Hayward is a solid defender who's not going to give you anything. I I think the book is that you can sometimes shoot over him, sometimes that he stands a little bit too far off mm-hmm. on the ball when he's when he's guarding the ball on the defense, and so you can kind of shoot over him a little bit. Okay. Um, he's not one of those intense wing defenders like uh, you know Tony Allen or yeah. someone like that. Which you wouldn't expect because he's right. carrying a 26 usage on the other end. And right. you, can't, you, know, you can't be maniacal every play when you're expected <laughs> to, to lead the offense. Yeah, no, and no doubt. And, but he, he's not one of those defenders, and I think that's, that's kind of the book on him. Like, you know, solid guy, not a defensive leader, not a shut-down corner-esque okay. So here's the crux of it, then I guess what I, more the way I should have asked it. When it gets down to, let's say the Jazz are, you know, competing in the Western Conference in 2017, mm-hmm. when it, and it comes down to it, is, are we going to see a bit of a change there? Are we going to see, when it really, really starts to count, are we going to start to see the, a little bit more of a, of a tight down game from someone like Hayward there once it's kind of all on the line? Yeah, I, I think a little bit. I mean, it, to the extent that you can, given that he's, his offense, needs to be where it is, at least for this current iteration for the Jazz to succeed. The ball needs to be in Hayward's hands a, a large majority of the and time. And the, the hope is that down the line we can remove some of that right. ridiculous responsibility that's on him, and then maybe he'll have a little bit more for the other end. Right, because I think, I, I think everyone kind of agrees that Gordon Hayward's not the number one player on a championship team good, and so you hope that as a number two guy, then he'd have less of that onus put on him and and could help more on the defensive end. Yeah, be the Scotty Pippen, if you will. Oh, that's you know that the Scotty's a good one. I don't think he obviously has. The, no, he the, doesn't the have the Scotty Pippen upside. length yeah. or athleticism defensively. But you know he can still contribute on that end. Absolutely. So what about favors? And we're we're going to get to favors in 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 probably a little bit because we're going to discuss the difference between favors and Gobert and kind of what we think about those two and the pairing of those two. What do we? What do you think of the way Favors has been defensively, and do you think our perception of him may have been a little off? Yes. Yeah, I, I think at this point, you know, we're in year five of Derek Favors. I think it's fair to say uh, he hasn't achieved defensively what we thought he could. Uh, and you know, that's I don't want to be too harsh on Favors because I think he's been better offensively 
than we thought he could be. Oh, I like worlds better. He's been insane offensively. I've really enjoyed it. So, uh, I, you know, I don't think that's that's too far against this game. But I, I think he's I think he's regressed a little bit defensively almost. And, uh, of course, he's the, the man in the middle for a bottom five defensive team in the last three years. I, I, I think those issues make it difficult to argue that he's a good NBA defender right now. Yeah, and I, speaking of people making posts on B-Ball Breakdown, I did one <laughs> last week that was about, very specifically on Friday, about Derek Favors, and so I, pretty much that exact theme is that he's been way better on offense than people thought he probably could be, but at the same time, he really hasn't lived up to things defensively, and we saw top 15 upside in this guy as a defender, and I'm just not sure that it's there. I Now, here's the thing. He has been the numbers bear out, the again, the Synergy numbers here, which thank you to Synergy, they that he's been really good both last year and this year against pick and rolls. So he's what we were talking before about how bad, how bad the Jazz's pick and roll has been. He's actually been by far their best guy, both at containing the roll men and at containing opposing ball handlers, which, again, those are incomplete numbers. They're only for finished plays, but you do like the his lateral movement, as I still think is at a high level. But I'm just concerned that he's not big enough. And that's my main. And this has been something I've harped on since the middle of last season. He's this is a six ten guy who the Jazz are asking to play against seven footers and up all the time. Yeah, and I just don't think he can do it. I think he can. I, I just don't think that that's that much of an issue in the modern spacing based NBA. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I Dwight Howard, for example, came out of high school and was six nine, and I, I think he's grown an inch since then. But I, I honestly think they're similarly sized players. No, but if Derek had the sort of lift that Dwight has at his, right. at his peak, uh, then it'd be a different story. Right, and that's that's definitely true. But I I think that having that big man center down low is is less important for teams than than ever before. I don't know that I agree, and we're going to talk favors go bear in a little bit, and we can get back to this mm-hmm. at that point. I'm not sure that I totally agree. They're speci- only specifically at the center position. I think that the people underestimate the gap between a 6'10 power forward and a 7'1 center. I think people underestimate how much that three inches means in terms of the stuff that you ask your centers to do in the league today. But we can get more into that when we get there. Yeah, I, I know. I, I think it's a good argument. I think you also have to question, is Favors more of a power forward or a center? Because I don't think he has the outside defensive game, the perimeter outside game, like the uh, like Jared said on Twitter. You know, We don't have that perimeter defensive big. I don't think Derek Favors is that. If he does play power forward, he'll be asked to guard the perimeter a lot more often. That's true. That's true, and that's a concern as well. Um, um, I, I do think it's a serious issue facing the Jazz. Uh, yeah, and, and we'll, we'll get into it more on the show. In fact, let's tease the rest of the show. So next segment, we'll have Leighton Shumway of SLC Dunk, formerly of the Deseret News. We'll have him on the show talking about the Utah Jazz and some of what's going on around the Western Conference and Eastern Conference, some of those scheduling issues. Uh, and then we, we also have, as you mentioned, Coach Nick coming on the show later on, uh, breaking down the offense and the defense of the Jazz more than, even more than we just did. Um, kind of the X's and O's of what's going on over the Jazz's last seven-game uh, losing streak. So we've got a good show for you around the NBA also coming up on the show. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of Salt City Hoops alongside Ben Dowsett, also of SaltCityHoops.com. Um, we are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz and, and have lovely NBA and Utah Jazz analysis every day on Salt City Hoops. So check us out if you haven't already, SaltCityHoops.com. Um Right now, though, on the show, we have 
someone from SLC Dunk, who is technically our rival blog, but really mm. we love SLC, SLC Dunk. I was an SLC Dunk writer before I joined Salt City Hoops, and everyone over there is, is super nice and friendly still, so anyway, thanks for that. We have Leighton Shumway on, who's, who's one, of their, uh, one of my most favorite writers, a, a terrific guy to watch a jazz game with. Leighton, are you there? I'm here, and thank you for the kind words. <laughs> far, kind, far more than I deserve. Well, no problem. You, you wrote an awesome uh, downbeat yesterday, and kind of going into the context of what's going on with the Utah Jazz right now, especially with regards to the, how difficult the Western Conference is. So uh, you wrote something for, uh, on how the Jazz would have fared in the Eastern Conference over the last five years that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, so this, uh, the article was sparked by, I read a piece from Grantland, uh, from Zach Lowe, who I know you guys love and I love too. Uh, he was talking about just kind of the general conference imbalance. And uh, it got me curious, and so I looked into actually the last uh, 15 years of how the Jazz would have fared if they had been the East, in the East instead of the West. And uh, what I found is that you would have to go all the way back to 1999 to find a year in which the Jazz would have finished with the same respective like playoff seating in the East as in the West. Wow. So how how frequently how frequently would they have been higher and or lower in that period of time? In that period of time, the Jazz would have fared better if they had been in the Eastern Conference every year for the last fifteen years and usually by more than two places. Wow. Are there, did you, were you able to figure out whether there were any years, and of course this is going to depend completely on the other teams in the, in, in the equation in each conference, but have you, were you able to figure out whether they would have made the playoffs in any years where they didn't? Uh, yeah, there are, here, I have my notes in front of me, let me see, at least, at least five that I see just real quick. So five? Five years that they missed. Five years the Jazz would have made the playoffs in the Western Conference, or East, sorry, in yeah. the Eastern Conference, where they didn't in the Western Conference. I mean, think about how we would think differently about the Jazz as a franchise had they made the playoffs five more times over the last 15 years. I That's mean, nearly they already as many made times the... as they've missed it. Like, right. they, how many times have they missed the playoffs in the last 15 years? Like five or six? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so... it would have been like literally last season and then the terrible... 26 and 56 year that eventually the Jazz drafted Darren Williams. And I think, is that it, Leighton? That's pretty much it. I actually got the number wrong. It would be four. Okay, so that's still Four a lot. times that they would have missed the playoffs, or that they did miss the playoffs in the West, they would have made it in the East. And then there are two kind of aberrations where they were in the lottery regardless. That's, that's insane to me. That's That's a big stat that just tells me, how big context is in the NBA? Because, I mean, think about we just think about this Jazz team so differently if they're a, a perennial playoff team over the last 15 years, only missing it one or two times. I mean, I, I just, I, I can't even, I almost can't even imagine that world. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, and Zach Lowe pointed this out, and it holds true as well, that that's just going off raw wins and losses by the end of the season. That doesn't take into account the fact that the schedule isn't balanced. Western Conference teams play 52 out of the 82 games against other Western Conference teams. So being in the East is already a built-in advantage because you're playing weaker teams more often. 
So I, I actually thought that you were building that into your initial <laughs> analysis, and now I'm even slightly more shocked. Like so that's so if you assume that instead of playing 52 games against the ridiculous Western Conference, they get to play 52 every year against the ridiculously easy Eastern Conference. I mean, that's just we could have seen like the team that that barely missed the playoffs a couple of years ago could have had like 55 wins or something in the Eastern Conference. Maybe not 55, but like no, I know, but like 40. So, yeah, and that might be good enough to get into the playoffs. Oh, I didn't mean last year. I meant the, the year before last. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's like, definitely, it's definitely safe to assume that they would have been far better and better even than the just the raw wins and losses comparison show. That's that's crazy, and, and I mean, I think we think about players differently if they make the playoffs and, and uh, you know have playoff experience and and kind of they may even get better bigger contracts from being on national TV during the playoff time. I mean, the the whole world changes depending on this context. I I just think that that's a remarkable stat. And that's to say nothing of the revenue that the team gets for the extra games, uh, uh-huh. ticket sales in the playoffs. Oh yeah, yeah. and as I think Zach estimated about an extra two million per game uh, per home playoff game on average, and that's for the, for markets like the Jazz. I, I think that's actually yep. a little bit high. Is so uh, from and this is just from me talking with people around the Jazz. I think that two million is is a overestimate for a franchise like Utah who. Doesn't sell their first round playoff tickets for that much. Okay, um, I would bet it's around a million dollars per playoff. Game. That's a, that's a buck or two, right? Like I would take a million dollars. Yeah, if no, but I mean, over so you get obviously two, uh, two to four extra playoff games depending per round you're in, uh, and that's the difference between you know being able to sign a role player that gives you a couple of extra wins or not being able to, at least and you for definitely... the. Breaking even jazz as it as it was, you know, through most of the two thousands decade. And you don't even really lose anything as far as the lottery is concerned because you're not going to. If you're thirteenth in the lottery, you're not going to win. You're not going right. to move up probably. So thirteenth or fifteenth, that doesn't really matter. Uh, that that stat just blows my mind. That's that might be the biggest what if for the last fifteen years of jazz. Is, is what if this team was in the Eastern Conference? That's crazy. Let's let's move on to your uh, schedule data. So you had a, you have this analysis kind of breaking down how the Jazz do against the best teams, the teams that have an over five hundred record, and how the Jazz do against the teams with an under five hundred record. How did that turn out? So this was actually taken. I, I want to credit this properly. I saw this on a. The uh, a subsection, first I saw it on a subsection of, of Deadspin, which is a Gawker network blog, uh, but it's actually taken from Reddit uh, slash r slash NBA, which if you're not reading, uh, I highly recommend. But yeah. So it, sh- it showed the uh, point differentials of all NBA teams, whether they were playing against a, a an above 500 team or a below 500 team. And the Jazz are one of only seven teams at, at time of, of posting that had negative point differentials in both cases. In other words, they played, uh, they, they had a, they scored fewer points on average, whether they were playing against either above 500 or below 500 teams. Now, but there were a couple of sort of mini caveats within that, am I right? Yeah, there were. Uh, the, the one that stuck out to me kind of most was that there wasn't a lot of difference between those margins. Uh, it's about, uh, negative 7.5 differential against above 500 teams and somewhere in the ballpark of, of almost five, neg- uh, five, minus five points against below 500 teams. So what that kind of says, you can take that, what, what I wrote is that you can take that one of two ways. Either you can take it that the team is competitive in every game because neither of those margins is very big, 
um, and they're kind of the same team no matter what, so they're competitive in all cases. Or you could look at it as, well, the team's just playing down or up to the level of their competition and just keeping it close enough to be close but not to win. How do you take so it? it? Depends on. I kind of lean more towards the first one, if for no other reason than to just say, like, I am enjoying seeing more competitive basketball for the most part. And I know that's hard to say when the team's on a seven-game losing streak <laughs> and everything, but but um, the Jazz have lost fewer games this season so far to this point in the season than last by a double-digit margin. So they have not lost as many times by double digits this year as they did last year. That's a good point. The Jazz last year got out to that horrendous 0-8 and 1-14 start. I think that's, that's a good comparison. And a uh, bunch of those make. were bite, and a bunch of those were blowout losses, if right, I remember correctly, right. where there's there's Absolutely. been a few of those this year, but they're not quite as frequent. Yep, that's correct. And, and they're in games that kind of make sense, uh, at least in my mind, like against Golden State, against the Mavericks, some of these elite NBA offenses that the Jazz, in my mind, were always going to struggle with. Um, well, thank you so much, so much, Leighton, for showing us your analysis. I, I think that that conference stat again will just continue to blow my mind the entire show, and uh, and that just how they are doing against the the good teams and the bad teams of the NBA adds a lot. Um, thanks again for joining us. We should give them the we should give them Leighton's Twitter. Yes, Leighton, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at at the Shums. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, and uh, check out SLC Dunk every Wednesday for my weekly column. Perfect. Thank you so much, Leighton, for joining us. And I do want to send our listenership to slcdunk.com. You know, check out Salt City Hoops, too, but you can open up multiple browser tabs. It's the, it's 2014. We have that capability. Check it out. Both sites have awesome jazz analysis, jazz discussion for you to check out if, if you haven't already. So uh, let's go ahead and take a break. But on the other side of the show, we're going to be talking a little bit about Rudy Gobert and Dante Exum and how those guys feature into the Jazz's long-term plans and, and whether or not they should be getting more playing time right now. This is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. This is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. We analyze the Utah Jazz every week here on ESPN 700, Thursdays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. As promised, we're going to be talking about Rudy Gobert and Dante Exum during this segment. And in particular, whether or not they deserve more playing time, how their performance has been. Those two young guys, I think a lot of fans are putting a lot of hopes on uh, for the future of the Utah Jazz, especially, you know, times are down right now with the seven-game losing streak. It's time to kind of look towards the future a little bit and, and fans see their future in, in those two guys. So want to break them down a little bit, and let's start with Dante Axum. Okay. Now, th- I think we started on this topic a little because during last night's game, I was, a little, I was wondering near the end with about, what, four or five minutes left to go or so when the Jazz were down about 15, which, you know, it's not impossible to come back from a 13 to 15 point deficit in 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 you know 4 to 5 minutes of gameplay. It's not impossible. But the Jazz were being very clearly outplayed by a team that was clearly better than them. And I was wondering why all the starters were still out and why in a game where both had already had very low minutes, neither Exum nor Gobert, specifically Exum, was in the game. And uh 
tell me, I, I don't know, what, do, what are your thoughts on this, especially in situations like that? Now, I don't think that we, you can't put Dante Exum in for, we talked about this at the start of the season with our predictions, you can't put Exum in for 27 minutes a game of meaningful basketball right now because he just he doesn't have the legs to do it yet. He's been great the time he's been on the court, but you can't expect that to happen for a kid who's 19 years old all the I, time. I don't know that he's been great. Well, he's been Great mean. is not the word I would use, but yeah. um, uh, I mean, to answer your question, A, I don't think... Uh, that it's that big of a deal, right? The the five minutes of garbage time, I don't think impacts their development much either way. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think that the starting lineup needs just as much development as Dante Exum and Rudy Gobert do. I mean, that starting lineup last night was 23 years old on average. Those are still players with significant time to develop, especially players like uh, Trey Burke and Ennis Cantor, who you know you probably make those substitutions for if you're the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I, I see your point. I see why you want to put those guys in and give them as much experience as possible. And, and I think it may help them a little bit. But in the end, we t- just talked about in the first segment about how much help Trey Burke and Ennis Cantor need at consistently doing the right thing on the defensive end. Those reps might help them more than they might help Dante and Rudy. That's very possible, and I, I don't disagree with you there at all. My, my, my main thought with it is that the, you know, the eventual down-the-line goal is to get all of the whatever, you know, whichever pieces you see being the contending core in a few years to be sore at at least as close as possible to kind of the same place. I don't know that that's true. You I think, think so? your I think your goal is to have the best the best players possible. But you know, I don't think you want seven guys with a with a PER of eighteen. You know, I don't think you want seven guys who are above average. That's that's probably just not good enough to win a, a championship level. I I think you probably want the best combination of players possible, whether that means, you know, Gordon Hayward's putting up a 25 PR and Alec Burks is putting up a 13, you know, whatever it is that adds up to the best win total, best overall production possible. I don't think they need to be all in the same place. Well, and I didn't necessarily mean the same place in terms of like their, their quality as an individual player. I meant more that this the same place within the team and within what's what the, the scheme and, and what you're saying still applies to that to a degree. And I, I think we, we don't really disagree that much here. And it was just, you know, it's a, it was a small thing where I was just kind of wondering about it initially. What about Gobert though? And specifically, do you think that we should see more Gobert with favors? Yeah, I do. I, th- I think that's a real combination that could and should be tested for the Utah Jazz. I, I don't know that it will pay dividends right away. I don't even I don't know that it will work even long term. I, I think there are some real issues about having two big men who work primarily, and in the case of Gobert, only within three f- feet of the rim. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that's just really difficult to do, spacing-wise, especially with what uh, Quinn Snyder is trying to do with the Jazz's offense. And truthfully, when I asked him about playing this lineup more minutes, that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, that lineup doesn't work against most opponents just mm-hmm. because you don't have any sort of spacing and it becomes too easy to stop on the offensive end. That being said, it seems to be the easiest and clearest way to deal with the defensive issues right now. And those are the biggest problems that the Jazz need to solve. And, and, you know, the offense has been fine. You almost say, let's see what happens at least with this favors Gobert thing and see if it can work rather than kind of sticking with your, sticking with your guns and going to this favors canter uh gobert booker combination that that has played you know the vast majority of the minutes thus far and favors has been not still not great 
but better with his range and with shooting from those. Sure. And, and I think if you put him in more of these situations where he was playing with Rudy Gobert, he would be kind of forced to even expand that a little further and bring that as a larger part of his game, don't you think? Sure, but that's not what he does best. I mean, look, he's shooting 78% from within three feet this year. That's, that's amazing. That's decent. <laughs> that's for for anybody. That's no, a really really good finishing percentage. One of the best marks in the league. Yeah, and so I think you want to accentuate your your strength there and say and have favors play near to the basket as much as possible. Now, the San Antonio Spurs have figured this out to some extent though, mm-hmm. playing uh Tim Duncan and Thiago Splitter together at the same fo- at the same time. And so I I think it is possible to run this kind of motion offense with two big men. Who who would prefer to stay closer to the middle of the of the basket? I, I think it is possible, um, but it would take an adjustment from the Jazz offensively that I'm not sure Quinn Snyder wants to make right now, as he is installing kind of the base of that new offense. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's just not guaranteed to work like some fans I think think it is. Yeah, and of course, when you're saying that we'd like to see more of it, you're not just expecting that that's going to reverse everything and no. it's going to be fine right away. And but the part of what makes the Spurs so good at what they do is how any piece from their bench one through twelve they can put that player on the court and they know that it's not a problem. Right. And that's so that's the Jazz want to try and get there. And now this is we're coming out with the largest small sample size alert that I've ever given on this <laughs> show right here, but. The, two, the pair of Favors and Gobert has played exactly seven minutes so wow. far together this season. And, and five of those were in the game Saturday, right? I believe so, yeah. When they were they were crushing for a second together, by the way, in that game. And the numbers actually reflect that. The Jazz have been a net 37.5 points per 100 better than their opponents in those seven, which again, but massively seven, tiny. Yeah, yeah, not even massively. You, that's just meaningless. Yeah, it is. Pro- yes, it is as close to meaningless as you can get. I'm offended much. you said that on my radio show. You used a stat with seven minutes of... I know it's just that I that the most the most basic groundwork you can conceivably imagine in your life is there <laughs> if Favors can continue the sort of shooting improvement that we've seen from him from the mid-range areas this year. I do not think I think there is still a ton of room even in today's NBA to be a successful team having two bigs neither of whom can shoot threes as long as one of them at least has reasonable mid-range game mm-hmm. and it certainly helps if the other one is a destructive force at the rim as a defender who walls off all opponents as one of the best 10 rim defenders in the game unquestionably yeah no I, I think it's absolutely something the Jazz should try especially as they uh, encounter this this trade deadline and offseason and try to figure out what it is that they want to do with Ennis Cantor you know whether or not they want to go after a Paul Millsap, who they want to draft in this year's NBA draft, which by the way features a lot of big men, both power forwards and centers. Kristaps Porzingis, like Kristaps Porzingis, um, but you know also like Towns and and uh, Okafor and a whole bunch of other different fun big men. Mm-hmm. Kaminsky too, he, and he can shoot the three. Yeah, That's... and and what kind of player you draft? You know maybe you draft a Kaminsky. I mean probably not where the Jazz draft, but maybe. Um, I think he's actually possible. Him and Porzingis are guys who could very easily be right in that sort of That's potential true. range. And I I have my eye on both those guys, especially if it does turn out that Ennis Cantor receives some offers from some teams that he's that the Jazz are not willing to match this summer. I think that's pretty much what the Jazz need to have their eye directly on. Well, remember, it goes in the other direction. So you draft first and then go to free agency. Oh, guys. yeah. So what am I thinking? Yeah, you, you don't necessarily know what those offers are, but I think that is... Uh, I think the Jazz will make a decision on what they want to do with Ennis Cantor before the offers come mm-hmm. in, if that yeah. makes sense. They'll, they'll have enough of a gauge of the market that they'll probably know, you know, we're expecting him to receive X offer, and we, we are expecting to either be able to match that or to not be able to match that, right? Agreed. 
Can I talk about Dante Exum for a little bit? Talk. Talk so, about Dante. I, I think it's interesting that he's only playing backup point guard minutes, especially mm-hmm. last night with Alec Burks out. It would seem that that's the best possible time for him to get some supporting shooting guard minutes, right? I mean, Rodney Hood is starting as a rookie, had his career high last night of 10 points. Um, and then you had his backups being Ian Clark for five minutes, and that went pretty woefully. Mm, yeah. Um and then Joe Ingles, who is, I don't know, not the kind of player that you want to be playing 26 minutes a game. Let's put it that way. No. Uh, and, and so that would seem to be the perfect time to say, hey, Dante Exum, why don't you get some more minutes here? And the Jazz didn't. He played only when Trey Burke did not play, was exclusively backup point guard. And I, and I think that's kind of a shame. I, I, I do think Dante Exum is a better point guard than he is a shooting guard, despite the size. But nevertheless, I think he should be getting more minutes at the shooting guard position just because it allows the Jazz to be a better team overall and Dante's development to to proceed off and off the ball. And, you know, uh, well, you know, on another not a seven-minute small sample size, but around 50 minutes, when Burke, when Trey and Dante have played together, they the defense has been like, God awful, but the offense has <laughs> the offense has actually been awesome. They've only been they've been a negative. Oh, dang it, I lost it. Sorry, they've been a negative four point two for so, one hundred possessions, which is not good. But it's I mean compared to what the the rest of this Jazz team has been doing pretty frequently, it's not like they went in the tank during those those brief minutes either. So maybe the Jazz need to play like Trey Dante Hayward favors Gobert together and have like no and uh, no. I don't know. Apparently, a poor defensive lineup on the guard side, and then the big men down low, wiping things up inside. Well, except is favors or excuse me, is is Exum a poor defender? No, I mean, he's actually been good. I, I'm just saying, with regards to this lineup, with regards yeah. to Trey and Dante, apparently it's not good defensively. Yeah, oh no, it's been terrible. So you clearly right. you've got That's to have I'm the saying. you've got to have the bigs behind them. You're right, and 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 you know what? As we're talking about these combinations, we'd like to see more. I think I'm I'm right with you there. If we do see more of of Trey and Dante together, I'd maybe like to see it with some of that uh, with that favors go bare because then you know you've got your best two interior defenders behind them. Quickly, how many minutes per game would you like to see from each of those guys? I'd like to see Dante. What's he at right now? He's at about about 17. I'd like to see it get up to around 20, 21, 22 minutes per game. I, I think that he's earned it. I, I think, think he's yeah. done well enough. to, And I think that his legs are coming around to the point. He's not, we're not seeing him on the sidelines winded all the time. And Gobert... He's currently playing about 16. I'd like to see him get up to 18, 19, maybe even 20, and especially on nights like the other night. Yeah, I'll, I'll raise you. I'll say he should – I sh- think Exum should play 25. Rudy Gobert should play 20. All right, well, that's that segment. Coming up on the other side, we're going to have uh, Coach Nick of Basketball Breakdown. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. B-Ball Breakdown on Twitter, and it's bballbreakdown.com, yep. am, I, am I right? So. Uh-huh. A lot of fantastic content, just breaking down what's going on in and around the NBA. We've brought him on to talk about the Utah Jazz. Coach Nick, are you there? I am here, guys. How are it going? Good. It's, it's, it's good to hear from you. I uh, uh, want to ask you about the Utah Jazz and, and get into that a little bit. And obviously, you know, you're a coach. You're familiar with breaking down offenses and defenses around the NBA. What do you make, first of all, of the Jazz's offense? You know, is, is it a good system? Is it set up for success? Well, what we saw in the uh, summer league was much different than what we're seeing now, which could very well be natural, but uh, I was a lot more excited when the start of the season happened, and now um, it just sort of seems like a lot of spread, four out, one in, very stagnant, not a lot of movement, and it's a little bit frustrating because 
There's a lot of young, young players who have a lot of energy who would, in theory, get that ball moving in a Phoenix way and get a lot of open shots, but I don't quite see it that way as of now. Now, Coach, how much of that do you think would be necessarily a failure of certain Jazz players and or Jazz schemes, and how much of that do you think might be attributable to teams have just now had a little bit more of a chance to scout things on the Jazz's end? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, it could very well be he wanted to install a lot of these great sets, and it just wasn't working. They weren't picking it up. And you know how the NBA works. They, they have like you know a week or whatever to put it all in. So he might have to kind of scrap a lot of it and, and sort of went a little bit more simple. What's striking to me is that they really aren't posting up when you have two players like Favors and Canner, you know, five and a half percent of the time they're posting up, which, you know, is, is way too low for a team that has two presences like that. I, I've, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way specifically, especially because in the past, Favors hasn't been seen as much of a post presence. So we, one of the things we were going to get to then, I guess, is a, is a good idea to ask you about was what, what would you do differently if you had, and knowing that a lot of these players are young and that it's going to be difficult for them to learn a really complex system as quickly as they're being forced to learn it. So besides the post, are there some other things you might be doing a little differently if you had a chance to take the reins? Well, I mean, I'm a triangle offense coach. I'm always, you know, partial to something like that. But certainly, um, you know, I think the Memphis Grizzlies aren't uh, the worst model for someone like the Jazz because they have these two really good big men. You know, Cantor uh, is really good down low. I know that he's got this reputation of being a shooter, but um, he's, he's in the 72nd percentile right now as a post-up player, and he's getting, you know, considerably less post-ups than favors. So I, I would try and get as much post-up with those guys and work inside out because then you get guys like, you know, Gordon Hayward who could really get, you know, some space as the ball gets kicked out and where he can attack and do his thing. So I would look for something, you know, I know they like to run horns, but I was watching the last several games and I'm not seeing like a, 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 as much horns as I would have liked, especially considering a team like the Grizzlies that run horns so much. So I would probably do something more uh, focused on getting those two guys cantered favors in the high post and the low post and working inside out. Coach Nick, I'm shocked that you want the Jazz to run more horns. Just shocked. <laughs> I have a fetish, I admit it. <laughs> um, uh, we should explain for the for the listeners who don't know what horns yes, is real please. quick. I'll, I'll just tell them it's ba- horn, a basic horn setup is when you have your two bigs, as Coach Nick was saying, and you set both of them up at the same time on the two opposite high elbows, if you will. And you can do all sorts of stuff from there. You can enter the ball to one of them and run some action, some pinch post action off of them. You can uh, run, have one of them step up high and set a high pick and roll and go from there. You can do a high low action with the two bigs, something like, and Memphis is actually a really good example. They do a lot of that with Zach Randolph and Mark Gasol, and it's really successful for them. So essentially, and they call it horns because it's it's two bigs there, and they're placed in similar places, and uh, that's a terrible way of describing <laughs> it. But uh, yeah, that is what horns is, and I, I would agree with Coach that I think we should, the Jazz need to look a little more at, motion is great. But you need to have more of, a, I think, a, a bit of a basis for the motion, if you will, more of a, a more of a, a, a standard set, especially when, as Coach says, some of the younger players are really struggling with the more of the complex parts of the offense. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they do have that that set where you know it's it's not horn certainly, but it's it's one big man on the post and one big man on the opposite elbow, and that that's kind of their their home set, if you will. I, you know, I, I don't know that that's the problem. I don't know that the, the consistency of player locations has, has been the problem for the Jazz. Now, that being said, I think Horn, 
it may have be the other problem. You know, they may be, be too consistent in what they're doing right now, and maybe they need to sometimes do bring both bigs up to the elbows and that and allow you to do these the, the different sort of actions you were talking about, Ben, off of that uh, those locations. Definitely. Yeah, now, uh, you know, one other thing I noticed was they, they love to go high pick and roll right away without any kind of side-to-side action beforehand. And, you know, the defense is usually set up in position to defend that pretty well right from the get-go. So that's the other issue I see is that it, it gets to be very stagnant and very easy to defend right off the bat. And, you know, if they could get a little bit of action, dribble pitch a little bit even, and then get into the pick and roll, that would open up a lot more space for them to attack. And you can even run dribble pitch directly into pick and roll. We st- I believe that was mentioned on the Zach Lowe podcast yesterday, who we do love Zach on the show, and he I believe they were talking specifically about how dribble pitch is starting to become the new pick and roll, if you will, because you can you can run up to a guy, dribble pitch the ball to him, and set a pick right away and have a pick and roll going from that. I think I, I agree with Coach. I'd like to see more of that as well. What about uh, what about the defense, Coach? Uh, obviously, that's been the larger concern by the numbers and by, and by the eye test. What have you seen there? Are there some major culprits in your eyes? Do you think there's anything wrong with the systems? Tell us what you think defensively. Well, you know, I, I try to watch as much of the pick-and-roll defense as I could. So I basically isolated all the scores they're giving up on a pick-and-roll. And, you know, I'm also, it's, it's for as much as I like horns on offense, I'm also a big ice believer, which is where you force the ball handler away from the screen and basically cut the court in half um, and take away half the court from the offense. And, you know, they do it a little bit, but I think what the issue is is that it doesn't seem very consistent either way. The guards, they'll high hedge more than they do ice, which I don't really like at all. We just did a breakdown of how the heat high hedge, and they they get destroyed by decent to good teams. So um, there just doesn't seem to be consistency. When you watch Coach Thibodeau and the Bulls, they play it the same way no matter who, no matter what, and they're confident that the execution will put them in a position to win those games. And here it just seems like they're trying to do two or three different types of defense on any given possession. And it's, it's a recipe for disaster when you have young, inexperienced players. And uh, you know what? Even if you had experienced players, it's not easy to execute that way when you're constantly switching. So that's what I would say is they need more consistency in how they want to defend it. And I would certainly say they just need more ice. How much of that, those defensive struggles are, you know, kind of those system issues and, and the consistency thereof, and how much is, of it is the personnel that's implementing them? <laughs> well, you know, that's a good question. I feel like, you know, no matter what happens, if a coach drills it correctly and they get execution what they want to do, you know, you should be able to get to, to, to defend. You might give up a shot, they might score, but you should have a hand up and make it difficult. So, I think that they have the, the personnel, as far as the players go, to be a better defensive ball club. But, you know, right now, it's, it's, the, the system isn't there. And whether or not it's because they don't have time in, in the practices or they haven't organized them in a way where they're, they're stressing defense enough is, is unclear at this point. But, um, you know, I don't see it getting much better, uh, you know, because there simply isn't much practice time until the, until, until the summer. I should point out that the Jazz today had a three-hour and 45-minute practice today where they, when they went over film and, and ran through these defensive options. So I, I think Quinn Snyder is, is where you are, Coach Nick, in, in terms of just 
wanting to spend as much time as humanly possible and maybe even more so on, on these defensive principles. And I think that a big part of it has to be communication as well. You, you, Coach, you mentioned Coach Thibodeau over in, in Chicago. If you watch a Chicago Bulls game, and you can, you can get this from regardless of the period of the game and the crowd noise during a game, you talked about icing the pick and roll, which, as you said, is forcing the ball handler to the essentially to the sideline and hopefully into the corner where he'll then be trapped between the corner and the defenders. When teams run side pick and rolls against Chicago – Every single time you can hear, it's usually Thibodeau, but you can hear somebody yelling out, ice, 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 every time they do it. I don't hear as much of that with the Jazz. And that's, that isn't, you know, that isn't necessarily scientific, if you will, or quantifiable. But do you think that's something else as well there, both from the coaching staff and from between the players themselves? Absolutely. I mean, when I coached, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a yeller or a screamer. I didn't yell at players. But the one thing that we did do is we would scream, you know, no middle. And we would scream, move in the direction of the ball. And those are the key phrases that we would yell in practice as well. And those are the things that players, sometimes when you get into a tough game and you hear that and you connect that with, oh, we, we do this all the time in practice, it kind of takes some of the pressure off because it makes you feel a lot more comfortable, almost like you're back in practice with the guys. And I'm sure that's sort of what Thibodeau is tapping into and, uh, you know, there's no question that communication is the basis and the groundwork for a good defense. Uh, one other thing I've also noticed is that the big thing that we have that we go off on on Twitter every night is helping one pass away. If I'm guarding my man and the ball is within 15 feet of me, I can't leave him to go out and help on the ball or else my man gets a quick pass and a wide-open shot. I've seen that a bit, um, and it's a discipline thing. But it's also every once in a while you run across a coach who, who actually tries to encourage doubling and off of one pass away, and that's troubling. It's not clear if it's a system thing or if it's just players that are kind of freelancing, but that's the kind of thing they absolutely have to clean up if they want to improve. Yeah, we were talking just a little bit about that before, about whether so the, Alec Burks is one who has a tendency to kind of chronically overhelp and whether we thought that was something they were being asked to do or whether it was kind of something that was just happening or in some cases whether it was really they're making the right play because the ball handlers and the pick and roll are just getting killed and then the help is having to come off and it's causing all sorts of problems from there. These sort of system questions and, and on bballbreakdown.com, which you are the curator of and I do write for as well, there was a, a, an article today from Seth Partnow, which was a a really, really good article that kind of tied directly into these sort of principles. He broke down a single play from Golden State Warriors versus the Detroit Pistons, I believe, and he broke it down into 15 different stills of the within a five-second period of actual gameplay. Here are the 15 different essential decision points, if you will, that the def- where the defense had to make the right call. And he highlighted how the defense made the wrong call one on exactly one of those decisions, which I don't even think was the last one. I think it was like the fifth one or something like that. They made the wrong call on one of those, and it yielded a layup to a great offense. When you look at that and then you see that the Jazz are making several more than just that one mistake, Coach, I think you'll agree that until you get those down to minuscule numbers, you're not going to have any success defensively. Absolutely. You made a great point, and we show this all the time on our breakdowns where it's really just the butterfly effect. You do one little thing, and it's usually just about discipline and focus. And, you know, and that's, it's not like they, they, they're doing it on purpose, although there are some players out there that you kind of wonder about. But <laughs> most of the time, it's simply just – you have to drill and drill it and muscle memory and over and over again in a, in a part method way where you're just working on one little specific move out of defending the flex, for instance. And um, if you don't budget your time like that, thinking that you have to do other things, then, you know, then you're going to continually have those issues because the players, 
they want to do it. You know, they want to please the coach and they want to be able to play defense the right way. But if it's not a focus every day and it's, they're not on them and they're not communicating about it, then, yeah, you're going to have those issues going forward. And, you know, that's a question of if it is it system. I mean, are the coaches going over it and are they pulling their hair out because they're not doing it? Uh, either way, it, it doesn't always reflect well on the coaching staff. Given that uh, that it does take that time, given that it does take those reps to to really know what to do the right thing in each of those decision points, when is it fair to kind of start judging an offense or defense? You know, given that this is the first year of Quinn Snyder's Jazz coaching tenure, you know, is it is it too soon to to look at what he's done and say, you know, this is what we think of you as a coach? Do we do we need to give Quinn a season, two seasons? You know, how much time is fair to start realizing what What's going on on the offensive and defensive end for the Jazz? Well, we mentioned Coach Thibodeau, and he ended up turning that, that Chicago Bulls team around in a huge hurry. Is he the norm, or is he way off the charts? I mean, I think he's probably closer to being way off the charts as a defensive genius than anybody else. Um, so you have to give him a chance. I thought a guy like you know, Coach Dunlap in Charlotte got such a raw deal being thrown out, being fired after a year before he really got a chance to put anything in. And I think that, you know, their success was probably as much about what he did for them the year before. So um, you got to give him you got to give him time. This is his first head coaching gig as it is. And, you know, the last thing that Utah probably wants is, is turnover after having had the same coach for so long. So you got to give him time. It, you know, right now it's early, um, but you, you also need to see some improvement as the season goes on. And as those little bits of practice do pop up when you can get them. You're going to have to be able to teach it in a way that they can pick up enough of it that you can start to see the improvement. Makes sense. Well, thanks, Coach Nick, for joining us. Tell us, where can we find all of your work? Well, pretty much b-ball breakdown across the board. We have our, you know, our, our website launched in October uh, with guys like Ben and, and Seth on, the, on doing fantastic articles, really in-depth analysis that you don't find hardly anywhere else online. And every day we do that. Plus, you can find me at YouTube at B-Ball Breakdown and then on Twitter as well where, you know, we live tweet games and have a great time getting freeze frames and vines and all sorts of stuff. So come on in and join the conversation. We'd love to have you. Cool. Well, thanks again, Coach, for joining us. That's Coach Nick of Basketball Breakdown kind of breaking down what the Jazz are doing on, on offense and defense. Ben, what were your thoughts? Um, I mean, I, first of all, I love talking to Nick. I, I, talk to, <laughs> I talk to Nick absolutely as much as I can, and, and he's been really great to me bringing me on the site, and I, I thank him for that. And yeah, you know, you really won't find a better site as, as someone like myself, who, I, you know, I was all over the site before I was a writer there as well, because for somebody like me, who I, that's what, this is what I enjoy about basketball. I enjoy breaking down what's physically going on on the court in front of me. I don't, I don't care. I care, but I don't care as much about, like, what Carmelo Anthony's hats are. Like, oh, talking, I'm, I'm all about uh, that. No, I know you are. I know you're bigger on the hats, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it really, it's, it's, it's just perfect for that sort of thing. Is it's, it, there is a lot of video. The writing staff that he's got on the, on the, the written site now is excellent. Nick's video break downs that he does are excellent as well and I, I think it's just one of the best places for folks to go and get informed and I, I think I agree with the majority of his views on the jazz I'm I do think you need to give Quinn a little bit more time um, and which I think he was referencing there at the end mm -hmm. but I don't think I think it's definitely too early to judge the job that he's done especially given the personnel that he's got so far right we're and, not even through 20 games yeah and the, the difference with the, somebody like Thibodeau is he actually had a few good defensive players on his like a few really good defensive players on that roster who just right. kind of weren't being used the right way and plus like like Coach said, he's a defensive genius of all time. So there's, you know, you can't expect every coach to be like that. 
yeah, I, I would encourage the, the coaches and even the players, you know, in junior high, high school, college, just to check out Basketball Breakdown and see if there's anything you can learn from it. Because I, I do think it is a wealth of knowledge in terms of what's actually going on in the NBA at the highest level that's making teams successful or unsuccessful. Um, I want to open up the phone lines and, and tweet lines a little bit right now to figure out, again, kind of looking at this overall bigger picture question of what's going on with the Utah Jazz. Again, seven losses in a row. You can call us in at 877-353-0700. That's 877-353-0700. And talk to us uh, about what's going on with Jazz. You can always also tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. You can find us on Twitter there. Uh, And, uh, again, talking with what's going on with the Utah Jazz during this stretch. I want to get into it because we didn't get time to talk to uh, about it during that first segment. But we talked a lot about what's going wrong on the defensive end. I actually think the offense has been pretty decent during this stretch. Reasonable, if not better than reasonable, yeah. Uh, by better than reasonable, do you mean above average? I'm, you know, I haven't actually gone in and checked the numbers, and I feel like stupid. I probably should have <laughs> gone and do that to check what they are just over the past two weeks. As we're talking here, I'm going to do that, so give me a second if I seem somewhat well, distracted. Well, no, let me, let me go ahead and, and interrupt you then, because I think last night's game was a good example of what the Jazz are doing so well. I mean, so last night they had 405 passes. That's 134 more than any other team, sorry, than the average team in the NBA and during a game. That's, that's more than, that's about two passes more per possession um, that the Jazz are making. In other words, they're moving the ball more than really any other team in the league right now. And impressively last night, despite that, they only had eight turnovers. And that's that's been a big problem for the wow. Jazz as far as is giving up turnovers and giving up points off of turnovers. When you only give up eight turnovers, the other, chance doesn't, the other team doesn't have much of a chance to score. They didn't last night. Ultimately, that was a really efficient offensive game for the Jazz to score 103 points, or sorry, 104 points in only 86 possessions. Uh, you know, it was a, kind of a slow game given the, the lack of turnovers, but the offense looked great. I mean, they had a lot of secondary assists. There was a lot of ball movement. They were getting more shots, more open sh- shots than their opponent. In fact, just a- again, another stat for you. Um, NBA.com Sport View tracks the contested versus uncontested shots, in other words, open versus guarded shots um, for NBA games. The Jazz actually had 11 more open shots than uh, the Toronto Raptors did, despite losing by 18 or you know whatever it was. 12, actually, amazingly enough, as I'm checking. 12 if, more if shots? The, if the box score, yeah, 12 more open, win, and by open shot, they mean defend no defender within four feet. Difference is... The Raptors shot those shots at sixty two point nine percent. The Jazz shot them at forty percent. Yeah. So, and that's you know that's a make them or miss them thing. And honestly, that that's talent. That that tells me mm-hmm. more about Quinn Snyder's offense being good enough and and the Jazz defense, quite honestly, allowing the Raptors to shoot sixty two percent. League average, by the way, on uncontested shots is forty three percent. So the Jazz were just a teensy bit worse than league average, but the Raptors were much better than average. And I I think we saw over and over again and. This is getting back to the defense, but that Quinn Snyder would have a hand up on the bench yelling at his guys to contest the shots. We didn't see that last night. That's why some of those those open looks may have been more open than even they seemed. Yeah, because I mean, how far then those these NBA these stats, excuse me, sport view stats track only the distance from the shooter physically. Now, you can be close to a guy, but if you don't have your hand up, it's probably not going to do, yeah, do anything. Like, yeah, uh, Quinn Snyder's quote, and this is a very, it is what it is kind of quote, but he says, we were there, but we weren't there. 
That's very Quinn. Like. <laughs> I think that Quinn has a little bit of Zen to him with, with certain quotes like that. And I think that's, that's, but no, you're right. Secondary assists is a, is a, uh, a great, a sort of stat to look at in terms of how the ball's moving. The Jazz had almost triple the secondary assist last night that Toronto did, meaning they were doing a really good job moving the ball around. They got a lot of good looks. They scored really well last night. But so here's here's a, a stat that I pulled up um, before we came into here. And we're just like stat on stat on stat on stat. stat. We're we're so nerdy. Back and oh yeah, super nerdy. That's why you guys listen to us <laughs> in the first place, right? So if you look again at open shots, four plus feet away for the any defender, right in the league. Okay, the Jazz for the season so far have taken. The eighth most of those in the NBA. They're getting open shots. So That's a good offense. They're getting their looks. And here's the thing. They're actually only giving up the ninth most. I said that's that's a lot. Huh. I shouldn't say only necessarily, but the main point I'm trying to make there is the discrepancy there is not that large. There's like it's not like they're giving up way, way, way more open shots than they're getting for themselves, which to me, at least in a very broad stroke type of way, says that I think the systems are actually there, especially offensively. The syst- I, I do think that the system is, to a, at least a point, doing what it's supposed to be doing, getting the ball moved around and getting defenses confused. But I think that we're still at a point, and this is, you know, we have to hope this improves over the next few years, is where the actual execution and the sort of the talent side, the shot-making side, like you were saying right. a second ago, maybe just isn't there quite yet. The Jazz don't have a player like a Kyle Lowry who went off last night against the Jazz who can just consistently make those shots time and time again. And, and again, Gordon Hayward comes the closest. He's definitely been the Jazz's offensive star thus far. Uh, but he he doesn't have the level of consistency, especially on the jump shot, that a lot of the elite players in the league do. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, you look at those sort of numbers and compare them, and I, I again, they're really broad stroked because that's there's a ton of context that goes into each shot. Like sure. not not every open shot is created equal. Not every guarded shot is created equal. Like as we just said two seconds ago, if you don't have your hand up, it's not the same as when you have your hand up, and. But I, I think that in general, and with, this is not the I've been pointing out these statistics on my Twitter account all year where the, there have been several games where the Jazz have had these 20 to 30 percent discrepancies in their shooting with open shots where they're getting similar numbers to elite, oftentimes elite opponents and they're just not converting them as well. And I think you see that's where the difference is. And that's. That's one of those elements that's the one of the hardest to quantify going forward and one of the one of the toughest to kind of predict, if you will. So. I think there's still a lot of variability there in terms of what could happen for this Jazz team going down the road. Yeah, no, I, I think there's no doubt that that's the case. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to do around the NBA on the other side of the break, uh, going through the, the LOL Lakers, as always. Going to be doing yes. that segment, my favorite segment of the show, let's of be honest. Uh, talking about the Philadelphia 76ers, the Golden State Warriors, and more around the NBA coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show. You're listening to it on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700, as Deep Voice Man just said. Um, I'm <laughs> Larson. Deep Voice Man. Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. Um, so we're going around the NBA this segment. And as always, my favorite segment of the show is the LOL Lakers segment where we talk about just how bad the Lakers are. Um, and, and it's a little bit bittersweet right now because the Jazz record is, is the same as the Lakers. So, you know, uh, we don't have a leg to stand on here, but we're going to stand. On uh, we're anyway. going to stand on it anyway. <laughs> the Lakers have a lot of advantages over the Jazz, right? They've got the big TV deal. They have L.A. They have the, the glitz and glamour of the Hollywood scene. They have Kobe. Oh, wait. 
They do have Kobe Bryant. No, they do. He's just not very good anymore. The difference is the Jazz are on their way up. The Lakers are nowhere near their way up. There you go. It's so true. Very true, John. So, Lakers are 2-5 and over the last seven games since we had our last show. Um, Which, to be fair, is better than the Jazz are. Better than the Jazz are. Yeah, no, it's true. But two fun Lakers, LOL Lakers moments. Dwayne Casey last night, um, coach of the Toronto Raptors, had a chance to interview him before the game. He mentioned their loss to the, the Lakers, you know, one of their only five wins. And he said, quote unquote, Kobe came out and it was a different animal the other night. Came out passing the ball and he caught everyone guard, uh, everyone off guard a little bit. So just <laughs> because Kobe started passing was a surprise to Dwayne Casey. Really surprised everybody. It surprised me too, to be totally honest. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, maybe it was like the greatest rope-a-dope ever. Like he spent the first 15 games of the season just convincing us that he's never going to pass no, the ball. Kobe has like four of these games a, a year where like, the the narrative that he never passes starts to get too loud, and then he just overpasses. And and honestly, I think the Lakers are better when he overpasses rather than underpasses. The other fun Lakers thing this week was uh, there are starting to be calls for Ronnie Price to start over Jeremy Lin. Ronnie's a very nice person. Yes, I, I love Ronnie Price. I love what he did for the Utah Jazz, uh, but um, that's not a good sign for your point guard situation. No, probably not. Jeremy hasn't exactly been getting the job done. I, I think he's been shooting some ridiculously bad clip over the last like five games or something like that. And they're actually they've started to get improved play from some of their some of their bigger guys. Ed Davis, we've been talking about him all year as one of their sort of lone bright spots. He's been decent. Um, Boozer hasn't been racking up negative headlines every night. I suppose. <laughs> so he's and and you know what. As much as it, it pains my brain to say it, Kobe's been better. He's been yeah. No, he's, I, I he's, don't think there's any doubt. Once he realized that he had teammates, it it really improved things for him. It's lovely. Byron Scott, by the way, said that he that he texts Kobe Bryant late every night about what's going on at the Lakers, which I just love thinking of them in their beds texting each other as they fall asleep every night. It's great. Um, anyway, let's go on to the the. Um, Oklahoma City Thunder, and they're the, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, I think it's fair to say two of the top ten players in the league returned to action uh, last week and this week for the Oklahoma City Thunder. We talked about it a little bit uh, on the last show, but what are the chances they can make the playoffs? You know, I think that they're still good enough. If you look at it right now, they are five and a half games out. So, well, In the loss column, five games. Five games out of the playoff spot with... They've let's see. They've played eighteen, so they've got they've got over sixty games to go. Mm-hmm. I think sixty. Ga- now they do have three teams in between them and that eight slot, so they're going to have to pass those teams, which we know is not always going to be easy. Yeah, but it's Sacramento, Denver, and New Orleans. Yeah. Like I, I don't know that those are the elite teams of the of the Western Conference. I, I you know you expect. An, a healthy Oklahoma City team to win more than five games or the rest of the year yeah. than those three teams. Now, that said, they're going to have to get back to things pretty quick here because some people have done the math, and they're, and I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but if they have a even a few more what you'd call crappy losses, like they maybe like you'd call the other one, the other, although New Orleans has played well, and right. it was Durant's first game back, so you can't expect the world out of him, although he had like 25 points or something like that, but if they have any more of those where they're beat, where they're especially against Western Conference teams that they have to beat, teams like the Sacramento's and Denver's and New Orleans's of the world, that's when it's going to get really tough mm-hmm. for them, is that they're going to, you know, and it's tough even for a team that's been together for a long time to put those superstar pieces back in where, you know, Oklahoma City and Coach Scott Brooks was actually forced to run a little bit of natural of real NBA offense while those guys what? were gone, which I know sounds crazy for Scott Brooks, you but can do uh, that? <laughs> yeah, that that's what I was thinking too. They, uh, they, you know, 
that's not easy to just turn back around and just be like, okay, well, we're not doing that anymore. Now we're just going to go back to the stand <laughs> now we're going and watch back to the KD deal. KD yeah. do everything. And they're going to have to get back on the horse quickly. I'm trying to, I'm looking here at their upcoming schedule and who they've got kind of, um, their next game is at the 76ers. So that's probably, they should win that one. Help, hopefully well help on the way back to recovery. Yeah. Speaking of the 76ers, they're our next topic in around the NBA. This is cool in the gang, right? I think so. <laughs> I, I am familiar with songs that came out well before I was born. Um, they won a game. The 76ers are an NBA team who have won a game against the Minnesota Timberwolves last night. Congratulations, boys. You know, I I am anti-hating on the 76ers. I love what they're doing. I think it makes all the sense in the world to, to tank again this year, get another great player, put it all together in the next couple seasons, and, and make a run with, with good players. And, you know, it, it's not the worst thing in the world for there to be one bad NBA team that everybody but the Timberwolves can beat. I don't 100% agree with that on a managerial level, but for the players, I, I completely agree. It sucks for these guys to have to be thrown into this situation where they they know they're going to lose like 60-plus games this year. Like, that's just no fun. The, you can tell that the guys were – you watched them last night, and I did. I watched the end of that game. I could only watch the end of it. If I had, <laughs> if I had tried to watch that whole game, my basketball IQ would have dropped like 60 points. It would have been really bad. Uh, but I did watch the end, and you could see once it was over, they weren't even that happy. They were just relieved. <laughs> they were just – no, and that's fine. Like, Aww. I, I – I, just uh, I was I was happy for them, you know. I they, I, they live vicariously. I live vicariously through them. Live vicariously <laughs> yeah, through them. no, that's correct. Yeah, and you know, it it sucks. You if you've been if you've played sports at any point in your life, you know that. Uh, you know, I've been on. I used to play hockey when I was younger. And were I've been you on, on a one in seventeen team? I was on a team that was a. Uh, uh, my dad was the coach. We were a, a select Ooh, team. Not a good a, coach. No, my dad was a great coach, but this one team, it was like the, it, it, we just didn't have the personnel at all. Okay. Uh, I was one of the better players, which you know you're in bad shape <laughs> when that's happening. And I think we won like three games out of 35 the entire year or something like that. And it was just, and a lot of them we got crushed. Every There were several local teams here in Utah, and all of them just kicked the crap out of us every time we played them. And, you know, you do you do take the, the little bits of pleasure that you can from the games that you win. And I can't imagine how much worse that would have been if we also had national media following us around for the entire time. So I felt bad for them. I feel a little bit better for them now, even if they're probably going to go and lose another 10 straight right now. I learned early in my sports career that there was a positive correlation between me playing lots of minutes and us losing games. Okay. The more I played, Mom the man. more we won. That's... <laughs> Or more we lost. That was that was the Andy Larson show. My my plus minus was a big negative. Okay. That, that's what I'm saying. No, we don't need that, Alfred. I didn't even understand that. <laughs> what was that, John? I, did, I didn't get. No, that. we don't need that, Alfred. Our, our producer John Lafollette is is really helping us out. It's this Derek segment. Favors talking about all that Alfred the Jazz need to oh, put out right, in the court. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to to Derek Favors, we're all just elves. Well, all right. Let's go from the bottom of the league. To the, the top. Yeah, Golden State has been amazing over the last 10. In fact, they have won all of their last 10 on a 10-game winning streak. Uh, new coach Steve Kerr, again, hasn't coached really anywhere in his in his life, is 15-2 and two in the NBA. That's pretty impressive. It helps getting handed a roster that awesome. Sure. But no, he's and that's not to diminish. He's done great. But, I mean, we've seen, we've seen other first-time NBA coaches struggle and, and you know, like Jason Kidd, like Derek Fisher is this season with the four and fifteen New York Knicks. Steve Kerr hasn't done that at all, and and that's a huge credit to him. Absolutely, and the, the they've you know I think in certain elements 
defensively specifically, he knew he had a good thing already. He knew that these guys knew how to play together defensively. He knew that Bogut was the guy who was kind of going to be the, the, the floor general there, working things from inside out. And he, I, I don't think he's touched it basically at all, except for altering some of his rotations, which always alters your defense a little. It's been very, very similar. And uh, I, think, I guess we are seeing a little more of Steph staying on point guards rather than Clay Thompson being brought over to guard the tougher point guards all the time, yeah. although we still see some of that. But I think that's, you know, and that's a mark of a good coach as well, is just because you're coming in and you're the new guy and you're the, you know, it's your, your, your impetus to your do baby. whatever you yeah. want doesn't mean you have to. If you had something that they had a top five defense last year per possession and he knew that he could just transfer that over and he's got all the same guys and he could do that again. But offensively, they've been, they've implemented a bunch more motion stuff. Really, really trying to emphasize the the skills, the passing. That there was a, the, I think somebody noted that there was a real discrepancy last year. I think it was Seth actually. We mentioned Seth a bunch in this in this yeah. uh, this episode so far, but who noted that their their difference from assisted field goals to non assisted field goal attempts was like massive. But yet they threw some of the least passes in the league last year. Totally altered that this year. They're throwing a lot more passes, a lot more meaningful passes as well. And of course, it's always going to be tough to guard that backcourt in any situation. In other words, it kind of makes Mark Jackson look good or look bad, which is a good thing for jazz fans who you know are anti Mark Jackson. I I'm not as anti Mark as a lot of. Like, in fact, I'm more anti his broadcasting persona than I am anything he did while he was in Utah. Part of that's because I was like eight when that was going on. But uh, I'm pretty anti what Mark Jackson did. He uh, uh, I think we can get past the rumor stage. The, he's for a him jerk, to get and in, I hate him. <laughs> yes, thanks. For him to to break up the the formidable Utah Jazz locker room with Stockton and Malone and try to to take sides. Put the locker room against John Stockton of all people is is a pretty nasty thing to do, and I, and I think it doesn't reflect that well on Mark Jackson's character. I would agree, and neither does his. I think his departure from Golden State says a lot of the same things. And and that's a really good point. And and truthfully, that is a good enough reason in in this Jazz fan's mind to to celebrate his failure, I guess, because <laughs> okay. he caused the failure of my hero, John Stockton. Fair enough, and and I think the the main thing for them is just. I think you do have to give Mark Jackson credit, and this is, uh, again, we keep referencing the same stuff in this show, but it was, uh, they, they did, they talked about this a lot yesterday when Zach Lowe had Ethan Sherwood Strauss, who's a, Go- a Golden State guy, on the, on the Low Post podcast, and Ethan did give credit, and I think it's right, to give credit to Jackson for, he was the one who, who allowed Steph Curry to burgeon into a superstar. That's true. And he, he was the one who allowed him to, who he said, you don't need to play like a normal NBA player. You're not. You need to play like you because that's who you are. And you need to start and sort of showed him some of the ways that given his style of play where he could push his advantages. And, and what you see now is, a, you know, one of the best players in the NBA and who I think is firmly in the MVP conversation. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. Despite the the Golden State Warriors being so good, it's amazing how difficult this Western Conference is. I mean, they're fifteen and two, and yet only a half game above the Memphis Grizzlies for that top spot. That's crazy. The top seven teams in in the Western Conference are all within two and a half games. The worst team at the very bottom of that of that seven group is the L.A. Clippers at thirteen and five. I mean, to have a thirteen and five record and still be only seventh in your conference is incredible. So realistically, that team has won six games in a row and is still at seventh. That kind of sucks. That does kind of suck. No, like realistically, Golden State could have three bad weeks and be in seventh. Like, yeah, they, they, they maybe could go from first right or even yeah. eighth if a bunch of teams if everybody plays really well. Like depending on you know because teams have to play each other and right, and, right, and right. so on and so forth. But like that's that's totally conceivable. And then you compare it with the East, and it's uh, cry cry. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's pretty amazing. This conference is awesome. I know that the imbalance isn't the best thing for the overall NBA, but. 
it's so much fun to watch. There's always a good game. Like every night, there's two really good That's teams a good playing point. each other. Yeah, and and that might not happen if the schedule was more balanced. Uh, again, just that that stat from Leighton Shumway earlier in the show that the Jazz would have made the playoffs four times in the last 15 years where they didn't because they were in the Western Conference rather than the East. Again, I think that changes hugely what we would think about the Utah Jazz in their recent history. Um, if they were in the Eastern Conference rather than the West. Let's go ahead and take our final break of the show. Coming up on the other side, and we're going to look at the Jazz's upcoming schedule, as well as a look at what they're doing around the community uh, in Salt Lake City and, and elsewhere in, the, in these lovely holiday months. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the show. This is the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. You can follow us for the rest of the week at Andy B. Larson and at Ben underscore Dowsett. I mean, we'll be, after, we'll be there after this week, I promise. We're here every week, Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m., by the way, on ESPN 700. But you can also check out our work on saltcityhoops.com. Um, of course, we live tweet games and, and home and away and... and break down the Utah Jazz every day, not just Thursdays here on the radio. So check us out if you already haven't. I want to get into just a little bit. We, you know, we've, we've had a lot of negative things to say about the Jazz today, and, and rightly so. They're on a seven-game losing streak. It's, it would be unfair of us to, to not break down the issues with this team. You know, they deserve a certain amount of criticism with, that, with those amount of losses. Mm-hmm. But that being said, they're also contributing in more important ways off the court. And I, I would just want to kind of bring some attention to that. There, this is the NBA care season of giving. And, and honestly, the Jazz do more with the community, almost more than any other franchise, I think. And, and I think that's part of the success of the Utah Jazz, why they've been able to succeed despite being in a small market. And why, um, and why their community loves them so much. Right. And because it, nearly everyone in this community has some sort of personal tie to the Utah Jazz. And that's a really unique thing that, you know, you don't see in, say, Atlanta. Um, you know, you don't see in Detroit. You don't see even with basketball-loving places like, like Indiana. Um, that That's made a big difference for the Utah Jazz. So I just want to give a shout-out to things like Trevor Booker um, did the Thanksgiving assist uh, before Thanksgiving, giving, going, taking local families grocery shopping for Thanksgiving meal items. That's something that's really cool. Ennis Cantor um, has done two things in just the last week, delivering 50 holiday meals to families at the road home. And then uh, Tuesday, he went to the Build-A-Bear workshop at Gateway Mall uh, to give uh, some underprivileged youth a, a special holiday party. So, uh, you know... Cantor Claus, right? Yeah, the Cantor Claus holiday party. I love that nickname, by the way, and wish that we could that, that could just actually be his nickname all the time. But <laughs> I love that. I, I yeah. really, really like Cantor Claus. Cantor Claus and Jingles should hang out all the time. Yeah. We can we get some sort of photoshop or something going with Cantor Claus and Jingles? Yeah, somebody tweet me that. I'm interested. I I promise a retweet. Not that it means that much, but yeah, the, I I really I I I'm going to start calling him Cantor Claus every time now just to see wow. if I can get okay. it to stick. Yeah, let's let's see if it happens. At least through the holiday season. Let's see if I can last like a week on that. <laughs> um the the we care we share Thanksgiving dinner uh, again, ownership, family, everyone associated with the Larry H. Miller family, um, he- helping out families, to th- uh, handing out meals to thousands of families in need. Uh, again, another tremendous thing. Uh, we've got the Coats for Kids coming up. Uh, we've got the 30th annual Christmas Carol sing-along. Again, a community concert hosted by the Miller family with uh, any proceeds going to the Larry H. Miller charity. Uh, uh, you know, We've got 
them visiting hospital, local area hospitals, holiday shopping with Steve Novak coming up, um, charitable auctions, the Bears coming out to all these events. I mean, I've got this whole schedule, and, and there are just so many events that the Jazz are focusing on the community. Even when they're uh, you know, having a game every other day this week, they're still helping out uh, in, in really important ways the community, and, and it's, it's cool to see. I, I love it, and it's, you know, that's that sort of stuff, especially around this time of year. You, you do wish in general that humankind and society as a whole paid more attention to these things all year round, but at the same time, as it starts to get cold and as it's a, the season that we're in, you know, those sorts of needs are more felt, and I, I think it's great that the Jazz, as you say, and I, I guess I don't know the program for every other franchise in the league, but the Jazz do a ton of this stuff, and I think it would be fair to say they're easily in the top half of the league, if not more. Yeah, I think it's something to consider as, as you, you know, yell and rant at, at Ennis Cantor, Dre Burke, and, and the rest of the Utah Jazz for what they're doing on the court. I think it's it's important to remember that they're legitimately good, gracious people off the court as well. And, you know, it, that's that's something that's ultimately more important in the end. Absolutely. Despite this agree. being not a uh, not a charity show, this is a basketball show, but, you know. We're still, still people. Definitely, definitely we're, people. Yeah, we're all people, and yeah, it's. I love it. It's a. It's a great thing. I would. Love, I would just love to go to the Cantor one because he. he doesn't the Cantor clause. Yeah, he doesn't get to be as goofy as he wants to be anymore, and that's. He I, really is like my favorite person. I. I want to see Cantor succeed more than anyone else on the Jazz, just because like he is so gracious to me. I have been mean to him on Twitter and various social media more than anyone else on the team, and uh, by a significant margin. And every time I come up and talk to him, he's always friendly. He's always nice. He's always joking about my haircut. Or whatever else, like he he's has the best relationship with with me that I think of with anybody on the team. Despite me being so mean to him, a lot of players I think would have tuned me out, and and he hasn't done that. Let's go ahead and break down the Jazz's um, upcoming schedule if you if you would like to with me. Um, we've got three games between now and our next show next Thursday. Tomorrow, of course, is a is a closest one against the Orlando Magic. Maybe the one where they have the best chance of winning. Uh, against a seven and fourteen Orlando Magic at home. Do you first of all do you think it's a win? Is this when the losing streak finally ends? I think it's got to be. The, you know, there's got to be some fire from the Jazz in this game. You've lost seven straight. You've got a game at home against another team that's very similar to yours in makeup. There were a lot of young guys there. They're still trying to put some things together. Um, I, I think you got to come out, and especially the main thing that I'm looking for, win or lose. Although I, I do expect and hope for a win, is the, the first half. It needs to be better. I, they they need to they need to come out as if there's a basketball game going on right at the start of the game. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. And I, I mean, I think they did that actually Wednesday. They came out well, and then it was that second quarter period mm-hmm. where they lost. So yeah. you know, you have to do it for the the whole entirety of the 24 minutes at the in the first half too. Yeah. Um, that's something that we haven't seen with the Jazz in this losing streak, and, and something that needs to change. I agree. I I think they get a win against the Orlando Magic. Uh, I. I think we're maybe underestimating what the Orlando Magic can do because I, I think they oh, are a, a good team. They're nice. Yeah. Um, but Alfred Payton can play. If, I love if they, that guy. If they do lose, it's it's ugly. After that, uh, Monday, they play against the Sacramento Kings in Sacramento. Our first visit to Mr. Cardboard Cutout himself, Ty Corbin. What's up, Ty? Ty, I'm excited for... Uh, I asked Gordon Hayward, or actually, sorry, Jody asked Gordon Hayward about this at Jazz practice today, and it, he sounded legitimately happy and excited for to see Ty Corbin again and, and that the the Kings have had some success in Sacramento this year. Makes your skin crawl. <laughs> yeah, he's, they've done a good job, and I, Ty, I think Ty's role is right for them. I think he's being a little bit more of a second guy. You talk about this with players. 
sometimes it's applicable to coaches too. I think I think he's do, he's doing a good job with what they've been asking him to do. Yeah, no, I agree. And and everyone, no one dislikes Ty Corbin. I should point that out. Like no. everyone around the Jazz legitimately likes working with Ty Corbin. Thought he was a good coach. You know, maybe as Gordon Hayward put it, you know, it's time for a fresh start for both sides, for both the Jazz and uh, Ty Corbin to move on to different locations so that they could continue doing what they were best at. And then the the model themselves, the San Antonio Spurs, come back to Energy Solutions Arena on Tuesday, December 9th, um, on a back-to-back. I mean, any time that you play the Spurs, I think the Spurs have to be heavily favored. No matter the location, no matter the back-to-back status, it's it's the Spurs. It's still the league's best off. I mean, it's not the league's best offense this year, but it, it's the league's most famous offense, the league's most... Uh, accomplished team I think it's fair to say yep and they will not be on a back-to-back in fact they will have three days of rest that they'll be coming in on and they'll so you hope maybe that you'll get lucky and that they'll play maybe they'll choose that that's one of those games where they want to sit all the guys and the Jazz will have a little bit of a chance right but I I don't know that's going to be really both those games are going to be really tough Sacramento's look really good this year and the Spurs are the Spurs and so yeah, kind of like you're saying, and then where where does it go from there? It then goes... they play the Heat on Friday, and then that's time for that six game road trip oh, coming man. up next. That's... They, they got to get a win tomorrow night. Yeah, it's going to get really true. tough after that. Yeah, after that it becomes really tough, and that's where you could see those multiple digit losses come together that that get really really ugly. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again. Uh, again, Jazz play tomorrow against Orlando at home. Check us out on saltcityhoops.com for the breakdown of that game. Um, we'll have a triple team recap as always. This has been the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700.